way inside the palace, that is the governor's headquarters. And they called together the whole battalion, and they clothed him in a purple cloak. And twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on him, and they began to salute him. Hail, king of the Jews. And they were striking his head with a reed and spitting on him and kneeling down in homage to him. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the purple cloak and put his own clothes on him. And they led him out to crucify him. When the sixth hour came, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lemeth sabachthani which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. But just before that, before the cross, Jesus was placed on trial throughout the night, as many as half a dozen or so trials by some counts. In the midst of that, we read that at the feast, Pilate used to release for them one prisoner for whom they asked, And Pilate said, do you want me to release for you the king of the Jews? For he perceived that it was out of envy that the chief priests had delivered Jesus up. But the chief priests stirred up the crowd to have him release for them Barabbas instead. And Pilate again said to them, then what shall I do with the man you call the king of the Jews? And they cried out again, crucify him. And Pilate said to them, why, what what evil has he done? But they shouted all the more, crucify him. And so Pilate wishing to satisfy the crowd, released for them Barabbas. And having scourged Jesus, he delivered him to be crucified. But before that, Jesus was in the garden with his disciples, praying, and immediately Judas came, one of the twelve, and with him a crowd of swords and clubs from the chief priests and the scribes and the elders. And the betrayer had given them a sign saying, the one I will kiss is the man. Seize him and lead him away under guard. And when, he laid hand, and when he came, he went up to him at once and said, Rabbi, and he kissed him. And they laid hands on him and seized him. But one of those who stood near drew his sword and struck the, high servant of the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. And Jesus said to them, Have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs to capture me? Day after day I was with you in the temple teaching, and you did not seize me. But let the scriptures be fulfilled. And all of his disciples left him and fled. But just before that, perhaps somewhere along the way from the upper room where he had just shared the Last Supper with his disciples and the Garden of Gethsemane that we just read about, Jesus was praying for you. And these are the words that he prayed for you and for me. I do not ask for these only, Jesus said, praying for the disciples who were with him, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they all may be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one even as we are one. I in them, and you in me that they may become perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you've loved me. Father, I desire that they also, whom you've given me, may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, 
Even though the world does not know you, I know you, and these know that you have sent me, and I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known, that the love with which you have loved me may be in them, and I in them. Today, I want you to think with me about what it was just before the cross, just before the trials, just before the garden, what it was that was on Jesus' heart and mind as he prayed for you and for me, as he prayed for those who would believe in, in him through the testimony of the disciples who were with him then. Verse 20 says, as Jesus has just finished praying for the disciples who were with him, he says, I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. And so Jesus clearly anticipated that his disciples would pass the story on, that they would tell others who would believe, and would tell others who would believe, and would tell others who would believe, until at last it would come down to us. We are part of this long historic chain of believers who believe in Jesus through the word of a prior disciple. And the prayer that Jesus prays for us, as you might expect, is rich and deep and profound and incredibly sacred. This morning, we eavesdrop on a conversation amongst the Trinity as the Son speaks to his Father on your behalf. This is, this is sacred ground. And I am mindful this morning, I've, I've been thinking and studying and praying about this. I'm way out of my depth this morning. And so I, I hope that you will read and reread and read again these seven short verses that contain the prayer of Jesus for disciples that are future for you and for, for me. So as we look at that prayer, let's take a moment and let's pray and ask Christ's blessing on our time. Jesus, come now. Show us how you pray. Show us how you pray for all the disciples that will yet to come. Show us how you pray for us. So that we might align our lives gladly with what you long for us. As you prayed just before the cross and the trials in the garden. They're on that path as you pray for us. And we ask this now in Christ's name. For your sake, Jesus. Amen. Well, there are three main requests that are embodied in Jesus' um, prayer for us. And in keeping with kind of our backwards look this morning, we're going to look at the last one first and work our way from the back of Jesus' prayer to the beginning of it. So the very last verse in chapter 17, verse 26, contains the last of those requests. Jesus is praying. He says, I made known to them, to these disciples who are yet to come, your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them, and I in them. This is the close of what is sometimes called Jesus' high priestly prayer. It's the whole chapter 27 is all this prayer of Jesus. And Jesus is praying in kind of a roundabout way that the same love that the Father has for his only Son 
that the way the Father loves Jesus, that that love might be in these future disciples, that that love might be in you and me. Jesus says he has made his Father's name known, and he's going to continue to make it known. Um, When he talks about making his Father's name known, basically he's just saying, I'm making my Father known to you. In fact, if you have the New International Version of your Bibles this morning, that's all it says. It doesn't even mention name. You just paraphrase it and says, I'm going to make the Father known to you, because that's the idea behind it. To make the Father's name known to his disciples is to make the Father himself known. And that's what it meant to follow Jesus around in the first century on those dusty back roads and hear him teach. To know Jesus was to know the Father. To see Jesus was to see the Father. That's what he would teach in John 14. Jesus says, if you had known me, you would also have known my Father. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Philip said to Jesus, Lord, show us the Father, and it's enough for us. And Jesus said to him, have I been with you so long, and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father, and that the Father is in me? So Jesus, in that day, he revealed the Father's name. He revealed the Father. And he says, he continues to do so, even now with us. He's continuing to make the Father known to you and to me. And in the revealing of the Father, his prayer is that the love with which the Father has loved him might be in us. That the way the Father loved his one and only Son might be in us as well. Think about that with me. That we would know and experience the same love that God the Father loved Jesus the Son with. Now, I love my kids. I have five kids. I love my kids like nobody on earth, right? Um, And should I extend that love to you, you would be getting my best love. You would be getting my deepest love, my most generous love. You could call it a pocket-emptying kind of love, right? Because if if I extend the love that I have for my children to you, you can borrow my car, you can live in my house, you can eat my food, you can spend my money, you can have my ear anytime you want it, and you can enjoy my company simply at your request. You can have my best stuff, you can borrow my kayak, you can ride my bike, you can sleep in my tent, you can drive my Prius, my truck died. Um, And if you should have happen to have a grandbaby, okay, I will loan you my wife for weeks on end, okay? Should you be extended the love that I have for my children, you will get my best, most generous love. And so Jesus prays for us that the love with which the Father has loved him That that love, that very same love, might be in us. It is surely the deepest and richest of loves that can be known. What wondrous love is this? That the love with which God has loved his son should be in us. 
And that's a love that's intended to affect us. When you are loved by someone like that, how can you not love them back? How can you not take that love and share it with someone else? D.A. Carson writes about this text. He says, this text does not simply make these followers the objects of God's love, as unbelievable as that is. He said, but it promises that they will be so transformed as God is continually made known to them that God's own love for his son will become their love. The love with which they learn to love is nothing less than the love amongst the persons of the Godhead. The love that's given to us is the love that has always been within the Trinity, and now that's how we are to love. But Jesus goes even beyond this. Not only does he say, I want that love to be in them. Jesus says, he adds a little phrase. He says, and I will be in them. I pray that I will be in them, that Jesus himself would be in us. Now, how is that even possible for Jesus to be in us? And I think to make sense out of that is to realize that both of the things that Jesus prays for in this verse that we would know the Father's love, and that we would have Christ in us. Um, Those are both ministries of the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit is called different things throughout the New Testament. On a number of occasions, he's called the Spirit of the Son, or the Spirit of Jesus. Um, For instance, in Galatians chapter 4, Paul writes, Because you are sons, God has sent the Spirit of his Son, the Spirit of Jesus, into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father, and you are no longer a slave, but a son. The Spirit of Jesus has been sent into our heart. And as we saw last week, that Spirit pours the love of God into our hearts. Romans 5, God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given us. So what Jesus is praying about here is the ministry of the Holy Spirit. The Spirit of Jesus bears the love of God to us, and he dwells in our hearts, effectively bringing Christ to be in us. And this is what Jesus is praying for us, that we would know the love of the Father just as he has, and that we might know him intimately as his Spirit indwells us. Now, one of the primary means that the Spirit uses, that Jesus will use to show us the Father is his word. The Spirit loves to use the word. It's called his sword. And he uses it to show us the Father. And so let me encourage you, on every day, open the Bible so that you can drink in this love God has for you. You can meet with God and experience his love. We don't read the Bible just because the pastor tells us to. We don't read the Bible just so we can get a badge for reading the Bible in a year, as helpful as that is. We read the Bible to meet with our Father and learn of His love for us, to let the Spirit pour it into our hearts. Just hours from the cross, right before the trials and right before the garden, Jesus is praying this for you and for me. Now, let's look back just a little further in Jesus' prayer and look at the middle request that he asks. It's in verse 24. He says, Father, 
I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. This is incredibly rich here. It's something that Jesus desires. It says, some of your Bibles say this is what Jesus wants. And that language may be um, a bit too tame. It can have the idea of what you delight in. If, if Jesus worked for Chick-fil-A, this would be his pleasure, right? It's what he loves to do. Um, he is longing for you as one who has been given, him, given to him by the Father to be with him where he is. And when he talks about that, Jesus is anticipating what we refer to as heaven, right? where he is about to go. And this is an amazing place. Revelation gives us glimpses. Revelation 21 says, uh, John says that he carried me away in the spirit to a great high mountain and showed me the holy city Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, having the glory of God, its radiance like a most rare jewel, like a jasper, clear as crystal. It had a great high wall with 12 gates, and at the gates, 12 angels. And on the gates, the names of the 12 tribes of the sons of Israel were inscribed. And the wall was built of jasper, while the city was pure gold, clear as glass. And the foundations of the wall of the city were adorned with every kind of jewel, jasper, sapphire, agate, emerald. He says, the 12 gates were 12 pearls, each of the gates made of a single pearl. And the street of the city was pure gold, transparent as glass. Those are pretty nice digs, wouldn't you say? Pretty nice place. But it's really not even about the place. It's about that we would be with him where he is. Jesus wants you. He's praying that you would be with him there. And not just to ogle the streets of gold, but Jesus says that he wants us to behold something even more wondrous than what was just described. That we would behold his glory. This is the kind of glory that causes beings that we'd be tempted to worship to fall down before Jesus and worship him. Again, listen to Revelation as it describes that, that encounter. Revelation 5, between the throne and the four living creatures, and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing, that is Jesus, as though it had been slain, and the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb. Just a few verses later, he says, I looked, I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders and the voice of many angels, numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom, and might, and honor, and glory, and blessing. See, Jesus, it's as though he's taking us aside and saying, hey, I want to show you something. There's something I want you to see. I want you to see my unmitigated glory. I want you to see what I'm really like. Not when I'm clothed in human flesh. Not when I'm God incarnate but when I am God resurrected and restored to the fullness of my glory. I want you to see 
glory that makes amazing creatures and godly elders and hundreds of millions of angels encircle my throne and just declare my praise. Jesus says, let me show you something. There's something I want you to see. And that is going to be something. Jesus says, Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. It is a glory that the Father gave to the Son as an expression of his love that has always existed before the foundation of the world, before the beginning of time as we know it. The Father has always been loving his Son. And Jesus now, in an expression of his love for us, prays that we would be with him so we can share that expression of love, that glory, that he can let us see it and experience it. As one theologian put it centuries ago, to be with him is the chief good. And Jesus wants to give us that chief good. It, it is, I suppose you could call it, an invitation-only event, right? The Son has asked that our names be added to the list to be with him and see this glory love that he bears to the Father, from the Father to us. And just hours before the cross, before the trials, before the garden, Jesus is praying this for you, that you would be with him there and see his glory. Now, at last, we find our way back to the beginning of Jesus' prayer for the church, for, for you and for me. And we look at his first and most belabored request. It's in verse 20 of John 17. He says, I don't ask for these only, the disciples who are with him, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I've given to them, that they may be one even as we are one. I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you have loved me. See, Jesus is praying repeatedly here. You can hear it in all kinds of different language and all kinds of different expressions that we might be one. Five times in this prayer throughout John 17, he prays for our oneness. Four times in this section where he's praying specifically for us, he says it. In verse 11, he says, that they may be one as we are one. Verse 21, that all of them may be one. That all of them may be one, Father, just as you are in me and I am in you. That they may be one just as we are one. I in them, you in me. That they may be brought to complete or perfect unity. Again and again and again and again, Jesus is burdened by this need that we have to be one. And he prays that all of us would be one. He says all of them may be one. No exceptions, no but whatabouts, that we would all be one. A union of love, of giving and sharing and honoring that's rooted in the Trinity itself. 
the very nature of God who loves in perfect unity for all eternity the Father and the Son. It is rooted in our relationship with God, the God who is three in one and one in three. And we cannot have this unity apart from a true faith in the one true God. That's what makes us one. It's distinctive. It's different than what the world offers, what we might call Coca-Cola unity. You remember this one? Yeah, baby, right? Grab a Coke, hang out, have unity. Pay for my plane ticket to fly me to this mountaintop in Italy. Right? That's not what Jesus is talking about. He's not talking about a unity that comes from hanging out and sharing a Coke. He's talking about a unity that's reflective of the Trinity and the way the Trinity loves that's been brought to us through the love of the Son as he gave his life for us on the cross. Jesus has in mind a kind of unity that is so radical that can prove such a radical kind of loving community that when people see it from the outside, they would say, there must be something to that, Jesus, if they love one another like that. He says it, verse 21, he's praying that we would be one as they are so that the world may believe that you sent me. Just a couple verses later, he says it again, I in them you and me, Father, that they may become perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you've loved me. This is to be a unity that gives the stamp of authenticity to Jesus' claim to be sent by the Father. We're supposed to love one another in such a way that people look at us and say, Jesus must be sent by God. That's the only explanation for the way they love one another. So this is a unity where husbands forgive unfaithful wives and where wives forgive um, hurtful husbands, where parents are forgiven by wounded children, where gossipy friends are forgiven and clumsy leaders are forgiven when they fail you, where busy friends are forgiven when they neglect you, where race is not allowed to divide, nor is class. It doesn't matter if you live in the nicest house in North Raleigh or you live in a single white out in Pocomoke. It doesn't matter. There's something greater. We love one another because of what the Father has given to us in the Son. Even politics can't divide whether you feel the burn or want to make America great again or if you feel like this yard sign. It doesn't matter. Okay? It does not matter. There's something greater going on here. 
Jesus prays that we would have a unity that's greater than all this. So someone who feels the burn can sit next to someone who wants to make America great again. And they're not divided. A blue devil can sit next to a Tar Heel and they're not divided. Yes, it's that radical. Okay? There's something greater here. And we will not let petty differences like race or class or lesser allegiances divide us. We simply will not. Jesus prayed that we will not. As Thomas Manton put it long ago, divisions in the church breed atheism in the world. And more positively, Brooke Westcott said, the unity of believers is the conviction of the world. Jesus says, the glory that you have given me, I have given them that they may be one even as we are one. So this is a glory-fueled oneness, right? Jesus gave his glory to us so that we would be one. And this, I think, his glory here may be different than what he mentioned earlier, that it's not his resurrected, restored glory in mind here, but in fact it's the glory of his humility and his sacrificial love that he has given to us um, at this time. It's the glory of John 1.14, where it says, The Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. And as we grasp that glory in His incarnation and His sacrificial loving death on the cross, that is to bring us together as one, a love greater than all other things. And so I would ask, are you bearing witness to this unity with other believers in this room, in your neighborhood, in your schools, where you work? Can people look at the way you love and care for other believers at work who are different than you and say, there's something to this? There's something to this. See how they love one another. But you know, those Methodists, they think you can lose your salvation. And the Presbyterians baptize babies. And the Pentecostals keep trying to make me speak in tongues. I could go on. We have lots of differences. But our unity is supposed to trump those things such that outsiders who don't get our fine doctrinal differences can see our unity above and beyond our differences. Indeed, they see a love that is greater than our differences. And I know there are questions that come to mind right away, but what about these people? But what about, but what about false teachers who need to be rebuked and excluded from the body of Christ and the unity that we share? And I would say, yes, yes, there are those situations. That is not the preeminent teaching of Jesus for his, his body in total. It is likely not your calling to be the prophetic voice who shreds other believers or professing believers. Okay. I ran across this website. Um, it was devoted to the um, shredding of author Max Lucado. Some of you, many of you read his books and probably been helped by him. I, I have. It says, uh, James 4.4 identifies Max Lucado as an enemy of God since he's a friend of the carnal world. Lucado's books are regularly on the New York Times bestseller list. 
He's been featured speaker at the National Prayer Breakfast, where so-called prayers are read from a piece of paper, pre-written and not from the heart. It's all a bunch of heathen formalism, modernism, liberalism, sinful hypocrisy, and ecumenical uniting by error. We don't do that. That's not what we're known for. Publicly shredding those who profess to be our brothers and sisters in Christ. And look, I know Max probably has his issues. I'm mindful of a couple of them. But the near glee that goes into these kinds of websites is just contrary to the spirit of Christ that calls us to be one, a radical unity of love amongst all of us. All of us, not just the ones who are like us. Are you manifesting a loving oneness towards Christians where you work? Where you go to school, in this room, even if they're different from you. And some of you are thinking, yeah, but they're so weird. They dress weird, they act weird, they listen to weird music. If they listen to weird music at all, they don't dance. They're just weird. You know what Jesus would say, right? Jesus would say, I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they all may be one just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us so that the world may believe that you sent me, that they may all be one. Perhaps this saying from the Moravian church, it came out of a period during the 30 years war in Europe that was just absolute bloodshed and horror. Um, This was their saying, in essentials, unity. In non-essentials, liberty. In all things, charity. And I'll post a couple of articles on our leader blog on our website that help us begin to think. They're not perfect articles, but they're helpful starting places to think about what some of those essentials might be. Jesus, just hours from the cross, he prayed this for you. He prayed this for us, for his church that was yet to be. And Jesus knew that unity in the church needed prayer, right? It's the first and most belabored thing that he prays for us. And so we need to pray this for our church family as well. You can take Jesus' prayer and pray it for North Wake. Now, Jesus even went beyond praying for us in these regards. He, he finished this prayer. He walked that path to the garden. He, he went through the arrest and the desertion and the trials where he was falsely accused and wrongly convicted and flogged brutally and then he bore the cross to make a way for us to know the Father and to be one. He continued all the way to the cross so that he could make a way for us to be one. And if you don't know Christ as your rescuer from your sin, your great King who is to be served, one who loves you enough to give his life for you, then let me urge you, all of this starts with saying yes to Christ, with confessing your great need for a Savior and trusting in his good work on the cross for you. As we partake of the Lord's Supper today, rather than come to the table, let me encourage you, come to Christ. Just right where you are, you can just prayerfully transfer your faith from your good works to Christ. And for those of us who do 
know this love that we've been speaking of. As we come to the table, we forsake our sins and we remember the one who loved us so. On the night in which he was betrayed, Jesus took bread and he broke it and he said, this is my body. It is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, after the meal, he took a cup and he said, this cup is the blood of the new covenant, which is shed for the forgiveness of sins. Do this also in remembrance of me. As you come to the table today, let me encourage you, if you'll save these two aisles for returning to your seats and come this aisle and along the side aisles, that'll help us as we approach the table. Would you bow with me in prayer, please? Father, now as we worship you in this act of obedience, take pleasure in it, be exalted in it. We want to remember together and celebrate that now the way you've loved the Son is the way you love us. That We've been brought in, adopted into your family by the good work of Jesus and his body broken and his blood shed on the cross so that all our sins could be forgiven and all of us can be one. Father, delight in this worship now as we celebrate and remember our Savior.